Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. He's the one that stretched himself out across that canyon, that through Christ now we can enter into that righteousness of God. It's in Christ that we have that righteousness. Again, the law is not done away with. The canyon isn't closed. No, it's just been declared completely satisfied. Our standing as righteous is what's called imputed. It's imputed righteousness. In other words, it's, it's credited to our account. The laws and holiness of God are what separate us from Him. Our sin can be seen as a great chasm, with us on the dark, death-filled side, and God's side is bright and full of life. Before Christ, there was no way to cross that divide. But as Pastor David explains in today's message, Christ, in His death, bridged that gap. He stands in our defense, freeing us from the death and shame we inherit at birth. He invites us to accept His salvation and cross the bridge into the land of abundant, eternal life. Now here's Pastor David with part three of today's message entitled, All of Christ. Christ is our righteousness, and that very idea of that word righteous uh, has a connotation of it's, it's the fulfillment of the law. It is the fulfillment of the law. For someone to be righteous, there, there needed to be, again, that faithful fulfillment of the obligation that was set before them. You have an obligation before you. You fulfill that obligation. That's the meaning. That's the understanding of that word righteous righteousness and justification. They're interchangeable in in that sense. To be righteous means that you have been justified according to the obligation of the law that was against you. You had an obligation before you. We all did. It's the holiness of God, the law of God. None of us could fulfill it. None of us could even come close. Probably you've seen the little illustration that Campus Crusade for Christ years ago put that on one side is the cliff where you and I are. Then there's this huge deep canyon. That canyon could be only 20 feet wide, maybe 25. We'll give it 25 feet wide. God's on the other side. I don't know how far can the longest uh, uh, running jumper jump. Can he jump 25 feet? I don't think so. I think 21 or 22 feet. You know what? I might be able to jump from here to to that chair. I'd probably break my leg in the midst of it, but it wouldn't matter because I'd fall short. And so with that long jumper, even if, if if, if the gap between was 25 feet, if he was able to jump 24 and a half feet, he'd still fall short. There was an obligation before us that we could not fulfill. And in order to 
be righteous, that obligation had to be fulfilled. It's a judicial act of God. He, he, he as the supreme judge, he declares uh, that, again, here is the standard. You've missed the standard. Therefore, you are guilty. And only he, as the judge, can then turn around and say, you know what? You are justified or you are righteous in the eyes of the law and to be held righteous as, again, confirming to the demand of that law. And that's only done for us through Christ. To be declared righteous, to be justified, is to have all of these claims of the law satisfied. You need to understand that the law isn't done away with, though. The law is still there. And in that, again, that illustration Campus Crusade had, there's a cross that lays across that that long canyon, symbolizing that Christ is there. The the canyon is still there. The separation is still there. God's holiness and righteousness are still so far apart from you and I to be able to even begin to apprehend. And yet Christ in his love and in his sacrifice for us, he's the one that stretched himself out across that canyon, that through Christ now we can enter into that righteousness of God. It's in Christ that we have that righteousness. Again, the law is not done away with. The canyon isn't closed. No, it's just been declared completely satisfied. Our standing as righteous is what's called imputed. It's imputed righteousness. In other words, it's, it's credited to our account And you know what? It's credited to our account by none other than God himself. There's not a a third judge that stands over there and says, well, God, here's you and here's your people. I'm going to stand back and I'm going to see, well, okay, yeah, they made it. No, it's God himself who is the judge, and he credits it to our account. He declares that an individual is justified, righteous in the eyes of the law, to be held righteous as conforming to that demand of the law. To be declared righteous and justified is to have all of the claims of the law satisfied. And as we come into that, it comes to us again by by virtue of that completed work of Christ. As and only as a believer through faith, comes into Christ. Faith becomes the condition or that instrument of that imputation that it becomes to our credit. It's through faith or by faith. Faith, again, you need to understand, faith itself isn't a work. Faith is simply a channel by which we receive the completed work of Christ. Faith is not a work on your part. Faith is a surrendering on your part of saying, hey, you know, I have to come by way of faith. We are, for by grace are you saved through the instrument or through the channel of faith. It's a work of grace. That grace is the work of Christ. It's ours. It is imputed upon us. It becomes ours through that instrument of faith. From the point of obtaining righteousness, we then secure what's called our sanctification. Remember the second word that Paul tells us here. Christ is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. Our sanctification also, that, that, that's not our work. That's a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And sanctification, beloved, you and I, we need to understand, it's a lifelong process. From the time we come to Christ until the time we lay this old carcass down, it is a process that he works within us. It, it, 
Sanctification also, it needs to touch every area of our lives. There's not an area within the life of a believer that our sanctification should not touch. And again, it's true that when we come to Christ, we, we were sanctified. We speak of we were saved, but we were sanctified. But it's also true that daily we're being sanctified. And once this immortal puts on, or once this mortal puts on immortality, we will be sanctified. Again, it's a process of perfection. It's a process of separation from the things of this world to the things of God's kingdom. The, the base of the Greek word for sanctification is the word that we use also, holy, holy. It's the same base, the same Greek word base, agios. It has that same understanding. It has that same meaning. To be sanctified means that we are being made holy. When you first come to Christ through the blood of Christ, God looks at us and says, you are holy because he what? He sees us through the blood, through, again, the the, the covering of the blood of Christ in our lives. I don't know about you, but I don't often feel holy. But I am holy in Christ. And at the same time, he is making me holy. He is working in my life. He is taking my life through the process of this life and working those things out of me and working the things of God into me. When we come, when we're declared holy in Christ, we also need to remember that perfect sanctification is not available in this life. Let me say that again, because almost inevitably, you know, people are confused about this. Perfect sanctification is not available in this life. You can look at the testimony of the saints all throughout the ages and recognize uh, the struggle for each one of them. Look at the testimony of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, as he's writing, he's, he's a believer, he's a missionary, he started churches, he's continuing on in his walk, and he writes, he says, man, there's no good that dwells in me, oh, outside of Christ, but there's no good in me. Paul says, I, I don't count that I've obtained it, but this one thing I do, I continue to press on toward that high calling. I haven't obtained it yet. And he even tells Timothy, and, and in a very present tense, he says, I am the chief of sinners. He doesn't say, I used to be the chief of sinners, but now I'm holy. Now, Paul understood sanctification. He understood that. We probably get more of our understanding of sanctification and of that process from Paul than anyone else. But yet Paul says, in the present tense, he says, man, I'm chief of sinners. I don't count that I've obtained it. Man, there's nothing good that dwells in me. But it's not just Paul. We look at King David. He saw that own truth in his own life. But yet, you remember, David was what? The, the man after God's own heart. David was the apple of God's eye. We understand that. We, we see that. But yet, David himself declared, man, he, he's filled with hidden faults. Lord, save me from my presumptuous sins. You see, David understood that there was still a process that he was working through even in life. And all you have to do is see the history of David, and you see that very clearly. He was the apple of God's eye, and yet he was flesh and blood and had to deal with that. And he dealt with the ramifications and the consequences of that through his family. Was he forgiven of his sin, church? Yes, Yes, he was. I just want to make sure you're all awake in here. (laughs) 
He sinned. He was guilty, but he was forgiven. The one who was the apple of God's eye fell a few times. And he was forgiven of that. And yet still, there were consequences to those past sins that he had to deal with all of his earthly life. But I thought God forgave him. He did. Just like he forgives you and I, but some of the crazy stuff we do, we may have to deal with consequences for the rest of our life. Isaiah himself, a great prophet of God, used by God mightily. And what did Isaiah declare about himself? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, wait a minute, you're unclean lips? I thought you were a prophet of God. How can you be a prophet of God and be a man of unclean lips? How can you be a spokesman of God and be a man of unclean lips? But again, Isaiah understood his position in God's kingdom. He knew that it wasn't about him. It was all about God. Charles Hodge speaks about this. He says, the more holy a man is, the more humble, the more self-renouncing, the more self-abhorring, and the more sensitive to every sin he becomes, and the more closely he clings to Christ. The moral imperfections which cling to him, he feels to be sins, which he laments and strives to overcome. Believers find that their life is a constant warfare and they need to take the kingdom of heaven by storm and watch while they pray. He goes on to say, it's been notoriously the fact that the best Christians have been those who have been the least prone to claim the attainment of perfection for themselves. See, If I figure I am something, then I'm not working on me that much. But if I come to the reality, man, I'm so easily to have my head turned. I'm so easily to walk this way when I ought to be walking this. I'm so easy to hear the world instead of really hearing that still small voice of God. If I understand that about myself, then you know what? I'm going to start paying attention. Well, why am I looking over here when I ought to be looking? Why am I walking over here? I ought to be walking. Why am I listening to that? When I ought to be hearing God's voice rather than the voice of the world. You see, this is the, I believe that this is the concern that Paul had over the church in Corinth. You guys think that you're something when you're not because Christ in you is your hope. Christ in you is the only thing that's why there shouldn't be any division. That's why there shouldn't be, again, that, 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 that division at all. Well, along with our righteousness and our sanctification also comes our redemption. And redemption is actually an English word that's derived from a Latin word that means simply to buy back, to buy back. It's the idea of purchasing back something that had been lost by paying a ransom for it. The Greek word, so it's, it's a word that occurs only about nine times in the scripture, and it always has that idea of ransom or a price that has to be paid. And again, for the idea of re- uh, redemption, there is legal, social, and religious definitions or usages of it 
even throughout the scripture. In the first sense, uh, the redemption or the purchase of a person or even another animal after a ransom or a price had been paid. And we find it in scripture in reference to the dedication of the firstborn. The firstborn male, do you remember back in the Old Testament, the first male is mine. Well, if you had a male child, you didn't go and sacrifice him to God. No, you would take a sacrifice as a ransom to buy that child back. You would make a sacrifice of an, of an animal for that male child. That was a, again, you were redeeming that male child back. And again, uh, we, we see that firstborn of man, firstborn of animals. Uh, in the case of the animals, yeah, the firstborn was sacrificed to God. But for the, for the human... He was substituted. In, in 1 Samuel, we, we find the story of King Saul and his bizarrety. And remember, they were in, in the midst of the battle with the Philistines, and King Saul made this crazy declaration. He said, uh, any man that eats today, you know, he ought to be put to death. What a, what a crazy thing. You're in the midst of a battle, and you're going to tell your people, it's not the time to fast. And, and then his son, Jonathan, he, he had a big banquet? No. He had a little bit of honey, and that, that's about it. And so Saul wanted to blame Jonathan for the problems that they were having. And so once they found out that Jonathan had eaten, then Saul says, okay, we're going to kill my own son. I'm, I'm ready to sacrifice. Yeah, it wasn't Saul that was being sacrificed. He was ready to, again, sacrifice his own son. But again, the people rose up, and they redeemed Jonathan back by sacrificing an animal for him. Again, substituting an animal sacrifice in its place. That's, again, that, that legal sense. or the, uh, and Yeah, the legal sense. The second sense is the social sense. That idea of family obligations and family rules, property rights, the duty of family members. Whenever a piece of a family's property w- was lost, because, say, if uh, you and I were in the same family, and I, because of bad management, became poor, I could not pay my bills, and I had to take my, my piece of property and, and, and pay it off or, or sell it off, to, to pay for my bills, you as my family member could then go and redeem that so that it stayed within the same family heritage, so that it stayed within the family and God made that provision for them. You remember that uh, story again, the, the understanding that we have in, in the book of Ruth where Boaz was the kinsman redeemer. He was the one who paid that. He redeemed the property of Naomi, and also he also got uh, 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 Ruth in, as, as his wife through the midst of that. That whole idea of that social redemption that's there. In the book of Exodus, the law was given that if a man's ox gored a person to death, under the law, the owner's life would then have to be taken. But he could redeem himself by paying a required ransom, okay? Uh, The clear truth of the fact is, is none of us really are able to pay for these things. That's that's the idea, the, the whole idea, the whole understanding of what we see of redemption, taking the place of what we owe or buying back, actually, for, for what what our indebtedness is. You see, when man fell way back in the garden, man really sold his heritage and his future off to Satan. He, he gave of himself, and, and that's when we who are born in sin, because of sin in our life, we, we've been 
paid off to Satan outside of Christ. What does Jesus, Jesus even tells the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, he says, uh, God isn't your father, Satan is. And you see, outside of Christ, that's where we are. We are his. But because Christ came, and he came literally as that kinsman redeemer, he became one of us. He became human flesh in order to be that kinsman redeemer so that his death made way for the redemption, for the purchase of our souls that had been long, long lost. Clear truth of the fact is, is none of us are truly wise according to the flesh. Not many of us are, are mighty. Not, not many of us are noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of this world to put to shame the things that are mighty. The very base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. Who's Paul talking about there, church? Us. The simple, the weak, the base things. The things that are despised. Yeah, you and I. God chose things which are not. We had absolutely no hope for eternity at all. But God has chosen us to bring to nothing the things that are. All the accounts, all, all, all the accusations against us. God has done that. Why? In order that no flesh should glory in his presence. In spite of all of this, God in his wisdom did a marvelous work for us through Christ. By the grace of God, through the instrument of faith, Christ has become for us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And he's done that in order that, as he says here in verse 31, that he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. That's our place, man. One of the things we are telling the folks who are planning the 25th anniversary of the church. We don't want this to be a Pastor David and Tot whoop-de-doo. This, this, this is the work of God. This, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating that God has been actively involved in this fellowship of believers for 25 years. That's amazing to me. Because whenever I look at that, I realize God has chosen the foolish things of this world. God has chosen the weak things of this world. God has chosen the things of this world to do a work that he desires to do. Not that man gets glory, but that all the glory and all the praise and all the honor would be his. And beloved, that's why every one of us as believers, every one of us, there's, there's, there's no division. There's no, there's no um, what's the word? The piety uh, or the exaltation of, of anyone in any place. That's, that's why I tell you guys, man, I'm, I'm just as easy being called David, huh, Barb? Uh, that's right. <laughs> uh, there, there's, the reality is, it's God working in all of us, and that's the only way that's going to work. It's the only way that we can really get through all that this world throws at us to realize it's none of us 
and it's all of Him. Amen. As we conclude our time here today on The Open Word, we'd like to thank you for listening. We hope that the words Pastor David has shared from the book of 1 Corinthians have touched your life and that you're eager to dive into a deeper relationship with Jesus. We'd like to invite you to join us again on The Open Word, but you don't have to wait to hear more messages from the Word of God. With details on how you can listen online, here's Pastor David. Hey, thanks, Chris. The Open Word has an archive of previous messages ready to be listened to, downloaded, and shared at theopenword.com. Simply click on the teachings link at the top of the page. You can also take the open word with you on the go by subscribing to our podcasts. This can be done through our website or by searching the open word on iTunes. By subscribing, you'll have sound biblical-based teachings with you anytime and anywhere. Thanks, Pastor David. While you're at theopenword.com, be sure to click on about for information about the ministry of the open word and more about Pastor David. There's also a link to Pastor David's blog, another great resource that looks deeper into what the Bible is teaching us. That website again is theopenword.com. That's all the time we have for today here on The Open Word. Join us next time as Pastor David continues teaching verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a blessed day.